You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Philippians 4, man, this book is flying by. We're almost done. It's so sad. Well, this is the book about happiness and joy. Tonight we're going to talk about peace, which is a related concept. Yeah, so we've been in the book about happiness. And, you know, happiness, uh, this is the, the New Testament book that talks about happiness more than any other. Happiness is the thing that everybody wants. It's so elusive. And tonight we're talking about, like I said, a related topic. We're talking about peace. And, um, you know, the peace of God is the promise that he's going to make for us here. And, you know, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul during a time known as the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And this was a time when Rome had basically conquered everything around the Mediterranean and a lot of Europe and some other parts of the world as well. And so, as a result, you could travel pretty much anywhere. There was a common trade language, and there was peace throughout the empire. And yet, the philosopher who lived overlapping with the life of Paul, Epictetus, said this. He said, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from anxiety, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns even more than outward peace. Yeah. You know, we live in a, a pretty peaceful place. We live in a country um, where we're relatively safe. And yet, do you ever wonder, why don't I feel peace, even though I've got no reason to not feel peace? And looking at my circumstances. That's what we're going to talk about here. This amazing promise that he's going to make here in verses 7 and 9 is that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, do you want the, the, the peace of God? Do you want incomprehensible peace? Peace that no one can understand and yet you have it? Do you want the God of peace to be with you? That's the promise here tonight. And I love this passage because, you know, this idea of, of the peace of God guarding your hearts and minds, I kind of think of like a bodyguard is like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't come in here. <laughs> the peace of God is there guarding, guarding against the, the anxiety that wants to creep into your heart and dominate your life and ruin your life. You know, Jesus promised this. The, the night before the cross, he said to his disciples, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Yeah, this is not the peace of the world which depends on our external circumstances. No, this is one that runs deep. And it, it's a peace that might coexist with struggles, with difficulties, and yet we can have a calm in the midst of the storm, like the eye of the hurricane. And, you know, when we think about peace, we think about there's different dimensions of peace. You know, we think about internal peace, and that's what we really want. And, you know, there's peace with others, and we would take that as well because people are annoying, right? And also, um, you know, we, we like the idea of relationships, I think, a lot of us. Peace with God might be something that on our own we don't even necessarily think about and think that that's going to be related to experiencing internal peace. And so we usually kind of go about peace backward, and what God says is we actually need to go about it the other way. We need to go from the bottom up. We need to start with peace with God. Like it says in Romans 5.1, we have been made right with God in God's sight by faith, so we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. And so the peace that He offers starts with peace with God, and that's because of what Christ did for us. He died on the cross. He died for our sins so that we could have peace, and we could be uh, reunited with God. You know, we were, uh, the peace w- with God was broken. 
by our earliest ancestors. You know, the, the idea of peace in the, in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, is the Hebrew word shalom. And that's not just absence of hostility, but it's like wholeness, completeness. Um, it's where everything is working the way that it's supposed to be. And when we were cut off from God, we broke shalom. And what, what Scripture says is we can have shalom restored. That peace, that wholeness, that harmony, that can be restored. And we, we do this by like what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock, the door of your heart. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. And we'll share a meal together as friends. And so Jesus is offer, inviting you to, to open the door. It's not that you have to go to Him. He has come to you. It's as easy as opening the door to Christ. Anybody can receive Christ if you can open a door. You're opening the door, he's coming in, and you're sitting down and you're dining together with a meal as friends. And that's the starting point. And then, you know, as we experience peace with God, then God, because God is love, he, he begins to teach us how to have peace in our relationships. A lot of this, the stressors and the, and the anxiety in your life, it's, a lot of it comes from inability to get along with people. And then, as we have that, then we experience that internal peace. And God will lead us down that path. He will, he will teach us peace. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love and then joy, happiness, which we've been studying this book. And then the next one is peace. And this is one of the things God wants you to have. So let's see what Paul says here about peace in Philippians 4. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So you see the compassion, the affection that Paul has for these people. You, you could tell he can really let down his guard with this church, more than really in a lot of the, the churches he writes to in his other letters. And so we see the closeness here, but we also see him calling on them once again to stand firm, to stand together, to, to take a united front. He said this before in chapter 1, he's been hammering on this, you need to lay aside your own interests, seek for the interests of others like Jesus did, like he gives several examples in this book. And then he says in verse 2, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All right, well, this is a little bit awkward here. You know, this letter would have been read, sent by Paul to the church and then read publicly to the entire church, maybe in a meeting like this or even larger. They're like, hey, we got, a, we got a letter from Paul. Let's get together and read it. And there were these women who are present named Euodia and Syntyche. Raises a few questions. Who, first of all, who were these women? The answer is we don't know. They were women, because he says that in the next verse. Um, a lot of people think they were, had some kind of prominent position in the church, maybe some kind of leadership role. Remember when Philippian church was planted, there, Paul went out to this group of women by the river, and he, he preached to them. Lydia came to Christ. Several others would have come to Christ probably. They, they may have been with this church for a while now. The church had been planted a decade ago, and some kind of strife had arisen between these women. Who is Paul's true companion? He says, indeed, true companion. I ask you to get involved and help these women work out their conflict. We don't know who that is either, but you can sure bet that the true companion knew who Paul was talking to. You know, and it's, it's good to have these sorts of people in communities because people have trouble getting along. And we need more people like our true companion here who has the tact, who has the skill, who has the spiritual discernment to help 
alienated people get reconciled. What were they fighting about? We don't know that either. Two very genuine, godly, good-hearted Christians can get at odds with one another. It, it happens. I've seen it happen. I've, I've been in these many times. We have reality here because we're really in each other's lives. And so this, this is the sort of thing that threatens to break the peace that God wants to give us. Now, why call them out in public? I mean, think about how this would have been for these women. This, this must have been something the whole church knew about. This wouldn't have been the first time they addressed it. Paul would not start with a public rebuke. You know, there's guidelines in scriptures for how to bring things up with people, but it looks like they both knew about it. They were entrenched. Pretty much everybody knew about it. And Christian community is not the kind of place we're going to pretend like everything's good and everything's happy, happy, happy. And, you know, until, you know, Uncle Ned gets drunk at Thanksgiving and tells Grandpa what he really thinks, right? This is, we're not going to fake here, okay, like, like some dysfunctional family. We're going to be real. And I remember being kind of embarrassed, like, my first experiences, you know, in home church settings like this where people were bringing things up in a kind way, but in a very real way. I almost felt like I shouldn't be here. I felt kind of awkward, like I was in on something I shouldn't be in on. But, you know, this, this is the way it is. There's a sense of reality to this. And I wonder how these ladies were feeling. You know, here they are. They're sitting through the reading of this letter, probably in different, different parts of the room, right? And, uh, you know, Paul's like, you need to lay aside your own interests, look to the interests of others, standing firm together. And I don't know if they're like sinking lower in their seat I don't know if you odious thinking, man, I hope Sintiki's really listening to this. <laughs> Sintiki's thinking, boy, Euodia really needs to hear this. He really is going after her. And then they get to this point in the letter. And, you know, this would be like me. I'm teaching CT, and I'm like, and seriously, when are you guys going to work out your issues here? <laughs> I'm sure a true companion here would help. <laughs> it's like they don't have issues, I don't think. <laughs> um, wouldn't it be funny if they did, though? <laughs> or he just calls him out. Just calls him right out. Boy, raises this question. How does God enable us to have peace with one another? You know, what's, what's interesting about these two ladies is their conflict. You know, I'm sure they didn't know this at the time, but, you know, millions, billions of Christians over the next 2,000 years would also read about their conflict. And whether or not they were embarrassed at the time, I'm sure the two of them are in heaven pretty glad that we're maybe learning some lessons from this little thing that they went through that God decided to record for us so we can learn something from it. So, you know, what are some, some tips here for how God can enable us to have peace, the God of peace? How can we have peace with one another? Well, one I notice here right off the bat, he says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Sintiki. And so he calls on each person to take the initiative. He doesn't call on just one of them. He's not, he, you know, it's not like, well, each one kind of does half, and the other does half, or it's not like, I'm just going to stand here until she decides that she's going to admit that she's wrong. And the other person's doing that too. That's how, that's how the world gets peace, and then they just end the relationship or something. No, he calls on each person to take initiative. Each one is completely responsible to God. For what are they doing to make peace in this relationship? And that's why we read passages like Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
And so there's a call here. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's this great book by Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker, a book that I wish to God I would have read earlier in my walk because it would have saved me a lot of heartache in my relationships and in my marriage. But um, I didn't read it until I had been married for a couple of years. But one, the whole book is, almost the entire book is awesome. But there's one, one question I remember him asking that really hit me. It says, on a scale from 1 to 100, how much effort have you put in to resolve this conflict? And you might be like, well, like, a, like an 85, which is pretty good. And then he says, what kind of effort do you think God would be pleased with? And it's like, ooh, I'm short by about 15. No, nothing less than 100. That's what God wants. And, um, you know, I mean, you can only go up to 100. Like it says, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, so there's only so much you can do. And like, all right, man, I, I have been to 100 a few times and still couldn't fix the relationship, I'll admit. But um, we tend to give up too easily. We tend to cash in too easily, I think. And um, that's why he's got passages like this. As If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, we're striving to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Um, it's very strong language. And so, you know, when we give up early, it's unfortunate because... Um, you know, that's what the world does. We're no different. It's, we also miss out on the growth that we can have in the relationship, and also we can miss out on the growth that we can have personally. Because even if the other person never responds, you're going to benefit from doing the part that God has called you to do. You know, this is not doormat where you just stand there and let the person kick you in the face, right? This is, that's not the loving thing to do, and that's often, you know, that's not what they need. But, um, you know, he, he's calling on each person to take the initiative, to take the responsibility. Secondly, he turns to true companion here, and he says, I ask you to help these women. He calls on the rest of the church to help. He doesn't leave us sort of in a, in a vacuum. He doesn't leave us just on our own, but we're part of a community here. And we've got other people who can help with, um, with resolution. And it's really good to have some other people because when you're in the midst of a conflict, it's pretty hard to see things clearly. It's hard to remember things clearly. We interpret things emotionally. You know, Jesus, Jesus says, you know, if, if, you're, if you've got like a big log sticking out of your eye, how are you going to remove the speck from your fellow brother or sister's eye? You know, you, you're going to have to take that speck out first. And sometimes you can't even see. You need somebody else to give you some perspective. We interpret things emotionally. You know, people will... they'll he, They'll hear something, and they'll interpret it through their lens, and it'll become distorted. So, um, you know, it, it's nice to have other people to help us with this. There's many times I've had to call people in and just say, I am so stuck, and I will literally do anything to get out of this conflict, but I have no idea what to do. You ever been there? We're like, I, I will actually do anything. I just don't even know what can be done here. I don't know what the other person wants. I'm not even clear what I want. I need some help. Yeah, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? We're confusing. Relationships are confusing. Third, he refers to these women. He says, they've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. They, they did this together with Clement, the rest of my fellow workers. We're a team here. And so third, he, he, God gives us a mission that's bigger than our egos. We've got something bigger here. Something is on the line here. You know, Ephesians 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness. 
And so there is an enemy out there, and it's tempting to think that this person who, you know, is my roommate is the enemy. This person sitting across the room from me at home church is the enemy. No. God's enemy has won, if that's the way we're thinking. Now, we've got to remember who the enemy is. You think about a, a nation when, 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 you know, they're attacked and when war is declared, suddenly a lot of the internal strife melts away. Or if you guys have seen uh, Hunger Games too, you know, one of, the, one of the lines in that movie is, remember who the enemy is. Remember who the real enemy is. And so instead of these, these youths that are thrown in the arena to kill each other, they band together and remember, we need to go after the people that are exploiting us in this way. And so we, we've got to remember who the real enemy is. And that's part of what Paul is doing here. Is he's reminding them of the mission. We've got to come together because we can't let our little thing get in the way of the big thing that God is doing. You see churches torn apart. You see people ripped apart by bitterness. You see them lose their happiness. You lose their peace because of bitterness and inability to resolve their conflicts. Finally, he mentions their names are in the book of life. And what I take from this is God meets all of our deepest needs. We're guaranteed we're all going to be in heaven together. That's going to be really soon. You know, before long, you know, it could be tomorrow. There's an urgency here. Time is short. He has forgiven us. You know, the forgiveness of God is what gives us the basis for the forgiveness of other people, according to Jesus, according to Paul. Forgive others as God and Christ has forgiven you. And so God meets our deepest needs. We're all going to be together anyway. He's given us a unity. We've got every basis for working out our conflicts and for having peace with one another. You know, I think this is even why he says the very next verse, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know, if you're constantly thinking about what God has given you and expressing gratitude to him for it and talking to other people about how grateful you are, I mean, you're going to be a happy person. Happy people can handle a lot. Unhappy people have a hard time getting along with anyone. Happy people, though, they can take, they can take a lot and they can be all right in their relationships they can work through conflict more easily because they're happy. They remember who they are and where they're headed. And they're grateful to God that they've, they've been given anything. So how does this apply to our lives? Well, you know, I don't think it's that hard to connect the dots here, but if you're having trouble, maybe it would help to blank out two names in this sentence. I urge blank and I urge blank to live in harmony in the Lord. You know, you could fill in your name. I urge state your name, Okay. <laughs> And is there a name you could put in that second blank? Is there? I wonder. I urge blank and I urge blank. Maybe it's time to finally have the humility to wait in on this. And you know, you can ask, you can ask True Companion to help. I'm sure True Companion would be happy to help you with this. We've got him in every home church. In fact, we could go ahead and blank out True Companion if you're looking for a little more um, application. Maybe, maybe you can fill your name in on verse 3. Maybe you know of a situation that you need to get involved with to help. This can feel a little awkward when you start thinking like this, but I mean, it would have felt a lot more awkward to Euodia and Syntyche because he was actually using names. <laughs> Poor ladies. Although they should have worked their conflict out, I guess. We need leaders. We need spiritual leaders. Some of you are like, I wonder how I can lead for God. Look no further than verse 3. Become a true companion that helps other people work out their conflict. Now, you know, the proverb says interfering in somebody else's conflict is like yanking a dog by the ears. 
you know, you, you got to be careful how you do it. You don't want to just wade in uninvited, start giving everybody advice. But maybe you can at least start praying for this for, for the situation. Maybe you can pray you would grow in wisdom to where you could become a peacemaker. Because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Happy are the peacemakers. Because they'll see God. There's, there's some like new clarity we get on God when we get involved in peacemaking. Maybe because God's a peacemaker and he's the God of peace. Yeah, he goes on. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. There's that that imminency. Christ could return any day. And, and Paul was saying that 2,000 years ago. That's even truer today. The Lord is near. We know that He's always near to us. He always sees everything. So that's one thing to factor in, whatever we do, especially in our relationships. But secondly, He could come back anytime. And He says, we're going to need a gentle spirit in this word. It's you know, the opposite of this word would be harsh and uptight and demanding. If you're going to be a peacemaker, if you're going to live in peace with people, you're not going to be able to walk around like that. That's not an attitude that makes for peace. No, humble, forgiving, warm, patient. You're going to have to be able to absorb a lot if you're going to be a peacemaker and if you're going to be able to live in peace with other people. Yeah, you're going to have to become easy to please and hard to offend, and some of us are the opposite. <laughs> Hard to please and easy to offend. No, but this is the kind of characteristics that God wants to, to cultivate in you. I mean, gentleness is another fruit of the Spirit. Self-control, kindness, these are all the sorts of ways that Christ is. This is how He was. Gentle, meek, and yet firm and powerful. That's what we need to be as well. We're going to have to be this way if we're going to be peacemakers who live in peace, who experience peace of God. And then he says, be anxious for nothing. Not, mm, don't be anxious for that many things. Not, just, just be anxious some of the time. No, never be anxious is what he's saying. Sounds kind of shocking, especially if you're like me and you've got problems with anxiety. Uh, anxiety is a sin. Yeah, it is. We can see from this verse right here. But it's also bad for your health. In case you didn't know that, WebMD, the effects of anxiety, you know, fight or flight response releases cortisol, produces all kinds of problems, difficulty swallowing, dizziness, dry mouth, fast heartbeat, fatigue, headaches, inability to concentrate, irritability, muscle aches, there should be happy music playing and running while <laughs> that happens, people hugging their children. <laughs> it's not a great list. When that extra fuel that's dumped into your system isn't used, it can cause all sorts of problems. Suppression of the immune system, a lot of mysterious digestive disorders floating around, muscle tension, short-term memory loss, artery disease, heart attack. I'm not saying these things are only caused by anxiety, but WebMD is saying that it, anxiety can cause these sorts of things, and they can make them worse if you've already got them through some hereditary avenue. Yeah, be anxious for nothing, it says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Yeah, so, you know, um, being anxious would be kind of the opposite of peace, right, the peace of God. Um, he says, by prayer and supplication, and so that's, that's just kind of two, they're synonymous here, prayer and supplication, he's just emphasizing it. It's got to be done with thanksgiving as well, though. 
So it's not just we're going to God and complaining, but we're doing it in faith. We're doing it with gratitude for what He's already given us. Part of the problem is God, we can become immune to even registering the blessings of God in our lives. And so as He's dumping blessings into our lives and we're like, you haven't done anything for me lately, then Him dumping more, the solution is not Him dumping more onto us. We, we, need, to, we need to fight that immunity that we're developing to even feeling the blessing of God, feeling grateful. But, you know, be anxious for nothing. This is sort of interesting because not all anxiety is bad. Take, for example, a verse just over a chapter before this one, a chapter and a half ago, where Paul is praising Timothy. And he says, he's awesome. And you want to know how awesome he is? I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That word for concerned in Philippians 2.20, it's the same as the word for anxious in 4.6. So which is it? Never be anxious for anything or Timothy's so awesome because he is anxious. <laughs> we got to see is there are different kinds of anxiety. There's different kinds of anxiety. There's this kind, the genuine concern, and then there's the bad kind of anxiety that we shouldn't have. And just briefly... A couple of differences I thought of between these two. You know, anxiety focuses on my needs. You know, that's the context for that Timothy one, is it's like he's genuinely concerned for your needs. So worried for other people and for their sake. That's a lot different. You know, anxiety leaves us either paranoid and trying to control everything or paralyzed where we just shut down and do nothing. But both are bad. You know, anxiety starts just ballooning and I'm taking responsibility for everything. Anxiety only sees the negative, can't even see the positive anymore because it's so worried about all the bad things that might possibly happen, and it's creating scenarios that will never happen, almost all of them. And anxiety just basically feels like God doesn't care or answer prayers, and that's the way I betray my belief in that is because I'm, I'm not praying, I'm not handing these over to God, I'm just worrying, and I'm trying to, hand, I'm trying to take care of them myself, I'm trying to be the God that is all-powerful and all-knowing. And you're just not that. Genuine concern, on the other hand, it's going to focus on the needs of others. Like we see for Timothy here. Like, like we see um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he's talking about all these, these trials in his life, and he says, you know, on top of all this, I've got the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. And he's like, I just, who is led into sin without my, my, me also suffering? And so he's concerned for the well-being of these people who he loves. And that actually is, is the sort of, that's the kind of anxiety that God can work with. That shows that I love other people enough that I'm genuinely concerned about their welfare. You know, the good kind of anxiety, it's going to take action, responsible action. You know, it thinks about what am I responsible for? Is there anything that God is actually calling on me to do? You know, some people sit around worrying about how they're failing their classes, and it's like, well, have you thought about studying? People are worried they don't have any money. Like, have you thought about going to work? Like, anxiety should sort of like, it sees danger on the horizon, and it, it should move us to take action. Like, it's actually something God gave us. Like, you know, like a lion is coming, and we take action to not get eaten by the lion back in ancient times, right? So now there's not lions really anymore, but like there's other dangers, and we need to foresee those, and we need to do something in some cases to avoid that problem. 
You know, genuine concern, it, it understands my part and God's part. There's things that I can legitimately do something about, but there's certain things that are just beyond my control, and, and all I can do after that is I can pray. You know, Jesus is like, look, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough trouble of its own. You know, anxiety is when we take the troubles, not just of today, but of tomorrow and the next week, and the fictional troubles from the next year, and five years, and 20 years from now, we're creating these worst-case scenarios, and we're trying to deal with them all with the strength from today. You can't do that. Jesus said, which of you, by worrying, ever added a single hour to his life? It's usually the opposite. We're, we're shaving hours off of our lives by worrying. The stress and the waste of time in it. So, we set boundaries. We understand I'm a small, finite human, but I've got contact with the God of the universe. And so, I can pray. Like it says here, let your request be made known to God. Ultimately, genuine concern believes that God cares and prayer works. You can bet that Timothy was laboring in prayer for these people. You bet that he was, he was carrying these people to God. Just like Paul, Paul talks about him doing that. Constantly remember you in my prayers, he says repeatedly in the epistles. He holds up other people who are wrestling earnestly in prayer like Epaphras. So, you know, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5 talks about casting our anxieties on God because we know that He cares for us, and that's what we need to do here. Paul Miller, this book, A Praying Life, that um, I just finished reading with a friend of mine, had some really good points on prayer and worry that I thought were really insightful. He says, most of us simply want to get rid of anxiety. Some hunt for a magic pill that will relieve the stress. Others pursue therapy. While antidepressants and counseling have helped many people, including me, the search for a happy pill or happy thoughts will not stop our restless anxiety. It runs too deep. Instead of fighting anxiety, we can use it as a springboard to bending our hearts to God. Instead of trying to suppress anxiety, manage it, or smother it with pleasure, we can turn our anxiety toward God. When we do that, we'll discover that we've slipped over into continuous praying. Yeah, your anxiety can be your greatest asset in your prayer life, like the fuel that, that powers continuous prayer. Continuous anxiety, turn it into continuous prayer. Your heart can become a prayer factory because, like Jesus, you're completely dependent. You needed God 10 minutes ago. You need Him now. Instead of hunting for the perfect spiritual state to lift you above the chaos, pray in the chaos. And as your heart or circumstances generate problems, keep generating prayer. You'll find the chaos lessons. Yeah, we search for the place of perfect peace so we can finally get some prayer in. Maybe the anxiety that is raging in your heart, maybe that's what you should be bringing to God. What's the alternative? Get it all together and then go talk to God? What do you need Him for? Your heart is like a prayer factory because it's kind of an anxiety factory. And that's what he's saying here, is he's saying, be anxious for nothing. Notice the connection between prayer and anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, nothing and everything, right? Anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Offer those up to him. Peter says the same thing. He talks about humbling yourself, and then he says, casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. We're handing it over. I think of myself sometimes as physically handing over my burdens to God. 
saying, you take that, you take that. Had an experience uh, several years ago where um, I was hiking with my, my wife and my kids in the Adirondacks, and we were on this, uh, the end of, up to that time, the hardest trail we'd ever hiked, and the, the end of it had like a quarter mile rock scramble. And if you've ever done like a scramble, these were like big boulders. It's like each one, we're kind of climbing over the boulder and down the other side, over the boulder and down the other side. Completely exhausting, kind of treacherous. We were already really hot, super tired. And, you know, we, my kids were like five and seven at the time. And we were having them carry their own packs. And I was very resistant to taking the pack from them. But we got to the end, you know, we got a quarter mile left, and it's like an hour to go a quarter mile. And I'm like, okay, I will take, I will take the packs. So, you know, my five-year-old comes over, hands it over, and I put it on. I kind of get it, get it. So I got two packs. And then my daughter sees that. She's seven. She comes over, hands the pack over as well. And then this other guy, who I don't even know, is hiking along. He goes, hey, you want to take mine too? <laughs> and I was really not in the mood to, like, crack jokes and stuff at that time. But I was like, no, they're my kids. They get special privileges here. But... That's, that's what it's like with God. It's our special privilege that we can take our pack, our heavy pack to him. We're tired, and we can hand it over to him. Jesus, come to me all, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what he wants. And so, you know, when, I, when, it's, when I'm laying in bed at night, and I can't sleep just because I'm, I'm worrying. You know, I, like with little worries, I just try to forget about them. But with big stuff, I tend to ruminate on them. And I can't, it's like I can't get out of my head. And I'll just try to pray those over to God. I'm like, I mean, God, God's going to be up all night anyway. I might as well hand it over to him. And then if I still can't sleep, sometimes I'll just get up and read something just to, to try to sleep. But sometimes, though, I'll get out my journal and I'll just lay it out for him until I feel like I've handed it over. And with bigger stuff, sometimes you've got to do that journaling. What am I feeling? Why? And then what does, God, what does God say about that? What does God think about that? It's the basic pattern. It's handing it over to God. You know, if you're, you're ever talking with somebody about a problem and you're both just getting more depressed the more you talk about the problem, and then you don't even know how to end the conversation, so you just keep talking about how bad it is, why not stop a lot earlier and be like, well, do you just want to pray about this? Offer it up to God. And then talk about something else. Because we already, we already handed it over to him. We cast our anxiety on him. We've got to find a way to consistently bring the things in our life to God. The important things in our life. Because when you do that, you will find yourself in a situation where there's big things happening in your life. Things that normally would worry you pretty bad. But you're like, I've been praying about this. I've been talking to God about this. I mean, there's things in my life where I'm like, you know what? I, things seem chaotic. They seem like I should be pretty worried because I don't know the future. But I've been talking to God about this for a while. I've been asking God about this for weeks, months, years. And so it, it, it changes your posture from worrying to watching. You're like, I wonder how God is going to solve this. And I wonder if he's got anything for me to do along the way here as well. But, you know, a lot of us, we think we have to choose between anxiety and peace, and the real choice is between anxiety and prayer. That's what it is. And we hand, we hand our worries over to God, and then we're free to carry the load that He's got for us. And lo and behold, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yeah, it's a peace that surpasses comprehension, a peace that surpasses understanding. You know, two people might have the same horrible illness. They both have the same understanding of that illness, and yet one is an, is an anxious wreck, and the other has a peace that transcends that understanding. It's incomprehensible, the peace that we can have. People will look and be like, how in the world can you have peace? You're in the middle of a hurricane. And it's like, well, it's because I'm right next to God. I've handed, I've handed my requests over to Him, and now I can experience peace. And it's still hard, and like Paul says, there's the daily pressure of concern for the churches, but as quickly as the pressure is on me, I can hand it over to God. And He, His peace will guard your heart and your mind. Now, some people are like, but I prayed and I still feel anxious. You ever had that? I have. A couple tips. One is, pray some more. You know, pray until you prayed is what D.A. Carson says in his prayer book. And um, you've really got to feel like I've, I've, I've handed this over to God. Um, are you praying with thanksgiving? Am I just complaining to God or am I praying in faith? Where I'm thanking God for what He's done, for what He promises, I'm recognizing who He is. That's what we need in prayer. I don't just need to list my problems. I need to share them and remember who I'm sharing them with and what He thinks of me and how much He loves me and how powerful He is and how He's come through in the past and how much He's given me anyway, even if He never takes this problem out of my life and how the Lord is near and could come back any day anyway. And so maybe, I, maybe this problem's not getting solved because Christ is coming back tomorrow. There's going to come a point in history where every Christian in the world, you know, they're just racking their brains with this problem and God is not answering what they should do next. And it's because God knows Today's the last day before the rapture. He's coming back tomorrow, and he's just sitting up there smiling because he knows what's coming. Another question you can ask, you prayed, you still feel anxious, is God calling you to action? Sometimes there's an action step he's asking you to take, and I found once I take that action step, then I'm like, okay, I've done the thing I needed to do. Action-oriented prayers can be a good um, antidote for anxiety. A few other practical suggestions I just wanted to tack on here that have been helpful for me. One is exercise. There's a ton of science linking exercise and anxiety treatments. You know, it's the sort of thing where as you're talking to your doctor about anxiety, also ask your doctor, say, so tell me about exercise as a possible supplementary treatment here. You know, I exercise. I, I think exercising to look good is not a very good motivation for exercise because you're just going to look worse and worse for the rest of your life. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> but exercising so that I'm not crazy, that, that has immediate payoff. All of the stress hormones, it just, you just flush them as you exercise. I just, I just finished reading a great book on the relationship between the, the mind, the brain, and exercise. It was super persuasive. I think maybe doing some reading on the link between those two might help you with your stress and anxiety. And also might um, help you exercise more, too. You have a lot more energy for other things. Organize your life. Some of us, it's like we're always forgetting things. We're always losing track of things. A little bit of organization can help. You know, it's, you're not, like, selling out if you, like, keep a calendar <laughs> or write things down. I know some of us, like, nobody's going to tell us what to do, right? But, um, 
writing some things down, trying to get a little bit organized so you're not just completely overwhelmed by everything. That actually can help some with stress and anxiety. And simplifying your life. Are there some things you can cut out of your life? Possessions, time commitments? You got to make sure you cut the right things. So be like, yes, I will cut all the God stuff out of my life. And it's, it's like, no, that's not good. But simplifying your life, we've, we, um, our lives are constantly moving toward complexity and overload and we're not trying to take every, all load out of our lives, but overload. Uh, we, we're, we're vulnerable to that in this culture. In conclusion, though, what have we seen here about the peace of God? Spiritually mature Christians have made peace with God through Christ. That's your starting point. That's what some of you need to do here, is you need that peace that's only possible through Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. And you'll be amazed, the, the sense of peace that you will feel right away, a peace that God will then grow and deepen in you, and he, he will stabilize that peace, really, is what a lot of spiritual growth is. Stabilizing your sense of peace. Spiritual mature Christians are at peace with others. They, they have developed the maturity, the emotional, relational maturity. They know how to resolve their conflicts. And they are very pleasant to be around. They have kind of a calming influence on other people. You know, they, they, they bring a sense of peace and happiness to whatever group or conversation they're in. And then some have gone even further, and they have become skilled at helping others make peace. And they experience that blessing that Jesus promised where he said, happy are the peacemakers. We need peacemakers, and we need lots of them in our, in our home churches. We're never going to make it. Our home churches are just going to splinter into a thousand pieces if we don't have peacemakers there. We need maturity. It's time to grow up relationally, yourself, and also in helping other people. And finally, you can experience the peace of God that surpasses comprehension. You can experience the awesomeness of a close prayer life with the God of the universe, making requests known to Him, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what we got this week. Next week, we're going to drill a little deeper on this uh, topic in kind of a related way. We're going to talk about dealing with negativity and cynicism. I don't know if anybody has any problems with that, but... um, talk about that a little bit. Yes, Lord, you are so good to us, and um, you are the God of peace, so it's, it just makes sense that you also would want to give us that peace. Thanks that peace is one of the many fruits that will be born in our lives as we walk with you, as we, as we have your Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us and changing us. Um, God, I pray for um, those of us here tonight that you would give us a step or two that we can take from this teaching, that we can move in the direction of experiencing your peace, whether that's the peace of resolving conflict, either our own conflict or helping someone else resolve a conflict, or the peace that comes from um, just presenting our request to you, the thing that we're worried about, Lord, and, and allowing our anxieties to drive us to you in prayer, and that we would then experience closeness with you that we haven't before, and that you would take something terrible like our anxiety, and you'd work that for good, and bring about peace and and a growing prayer life. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.